Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 33 of Sleep Talk, the podcast talking all things sleep. And welcome again to my co-host, Moira Ewer. Hi, Dave. Hello, everyone. So in this episode, we're going to talk about sleep and depression. In the last episode, we talked about rhythm and mood and how light can impact on depression and depression symptoms. We're going to build on that and talk a little bit more about depression in this episode. We'll start with an overview about sleep and depression and then come back and talk with Sean Kane about some new research on the interaction between light and some of the depression treatments. So anything topical? this month in sleep, Moira? Well, there was a, a big feature in the Australian Financial Review recently, well, in Australia, which uh, featured you and, and the Sleep Health Foundation. So that was that was pretty exciting, wasn't it? Yeah, great to be able to get sleep on the radar. Mm. And, you know, it was the weekend magazine for the Australian Financial Review and to have some, you know, some nice articles about sleep. Mm. We feel they're well balanced because we... We were quoted, <laughs> quoted in them. And oh, help, excellent. Excellent help, quality. <laughs> help put them together. You know, from our point of view, it's nice because we feel we can put out a more measured message about sleep. At least the articles mm. weren't, here's how you're going to get Alzheimer's if you don't sleep for yeah. eight hours every yeah. single night. And here's yeah. five ways to instantly sort of sleep better tonight. Yeah, because sometimes, yeah, it's just, it's just refreshing to not have to always just be talking about that. Like, let's let's all have perfect sleep tonight. Like, mm-hmm. let's not have any other nuanced messages. And so, yeah, it was. it's good to be, be part of that because a lot of breakfast meetings and things I've been going to recently, the general well-being community are really into sleep. It was fantastic. It was a, I went to one that wasn't – the topic wasn't sleep at all. But I, I would say 85% of what was on the panel and on the stage the whole morning was sleep. Mm-hmm. But delivered by people who weren't sleep savvy, if you yeah. like. It was sort of – I don't want to use the word ex- expert. But because – so what it is, it's generally – I mean, everyone knows, you know, the Matthew Walker – recent like bestsellers and and why we sleep and how important it is and just delivery of that is important yep. that we're not all going to die of or, or have alzheimer's tomorrow if we don't sleep well tonight and yeah that's the subtlety and mm. the nuancing mm. and sometimes that gets lost a bit and the messages are a bit more right what's where's the list give me the the bullet points yeah so it's, yeah it's good to be yeah. part of other types of um, yeah, stories yeah. And, and it was you know we had a fair bit of length to be able to talk more about yeah. sleep in that feature in the yeah. Australian Yeah, and I think I was quoted as saying that like a bit of, of a little bit of a complaint almost so that there's, we're up against it a bit with with this sort of there's a lot of noise around sleep. A lot of uh, people just wanting to yeah churn out lots of articles about yeah the top five lists of t- tips etc. It was good to have a deviation from that. So the theme for this month's podcast is sleep and depression. And we know sleep problems are very common in depression. So there's some nice longitudinal studies showing that in people who have been treated with antidepressants, 12 months in, not feeling sort of that sadness and hopelessness, that 50% still have insomnia or sleep disturbance that impacts on their day-to-day functioning. And around 50% also have the other, hypersomnia or excessive sleepiness or symptoms of fatigue. And so Disturbed sleep or sleepiness are really common things, even with depression, even when symptoms can be reasonably well controlled. And there's also this two-way interaction with we know that people who sleep poorly are at a higher risk of either developing depression de novo or getting a relapse of 
depression. And mm. interestingly, sort of thinking about this, looking at my own practice, there's 48% of new people coming to see me in my practice are on an antidepressant. Mm. And you know, the use of antidepressants in Australia is actually very high. It's not 48% of the population. But in people with sleep problems, it's incredibly common that people are on these medications. Absolutely. I'm not surprised at all by that, that here in your practice, it's. I thought it might even be higher. Like it, it's certainly my experience that the patients, the clients that I get from you, I would say at least half, probably even more. I would have thought 60%. There is a selection bias in that because you don't mm. see the ones I manage with snoring and sleep apnea, for example. Yes, that okay. Di- that yeah. dilute the sample, but you're right. You've got it, a skewed sample. Yeah. yeah, of the people I would then send on to you who've mm. got insomnia, yeah, the proportion will be way higher yeah, than, yeah. than 48%. Yeah. So to help us talk through this topic of sleep and depression, we've got a couple of guests that we interviewed. So the first one is Assistant Professor David Plant. And David's a clinician scientist at the University of Wisconsin in Madison in the United States. And his research group focuses on applied research into both sleep medicine and psychiatry. And some of the stuff that has interested me is their specific emphasis on looking at excessive sleepiness or hypersomnolence, how that ties in with mood. And as you'll hear about in a subsequent podcast episode, whether you can differentiate by measuring sleep different types of sleepiness. So thanks very much for joining us and helping us out with the podcast. Absolutely my pleasure to be here, David. So what are the common sleep problems that occur in people with depression? People with depression can have a number of different sleep complaints. I would broadly categorize them into either insomnia complaints, which is when people have difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep despite adequate opportunity, or what I'd call hypersomnolence complaints. So these are complaints of excessive daytime sleepiness, oftentimes not necessarily with uh, long sleep periods or durations. And both insomnia and hypersomnolence can uh, overlap with one another. So some people may have a sort of a, a combination of, of both symptoms. And in someone who's got depression that you're managing, if they've got comorbid insomnia, how do you approach that? Right. So if someone has depression and they have a primary complaint of insomnia, so difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep despite adequate opportunity, the first thing that I always do when I'm approaching someone is to try to get a a pretty careful history. So I think one of the things that a lot of times we've all of us fall into in clinical practices trying to sometimes take shortcuts. Mm-hmm. But really, in the case of understanding a sleep complaint, you have to recognize it's a 24-hour process. Uh, and so I'm pretty careful about getting a detailed history about not just what's going on you know, at night, but also during the day, and also assessing for any other co-occurring disorders that might be contributing to the complaint. Um, one of the things that I think more and more psychiatrists are beginning to appreciate is the fact that there's a lot of what I'd call primary sleep disorders that can occur with depression or even present with depressive symptoms. So a classic example is obstructive sleep apnea. So for example, even if someone's presenting with depression and they have an insomnia complaint, especially if they have an insomnia that's characterized by, say, frequent brief awakenings uh, of, for unclear reasons, mm-hmm. that's the kind of person that I'd want to do a careful history to understand if they They might have risk for uh, sleep apnea and and assess for things like snoring uh, and those types of things. If I'm pretty convinced that there isn't any other medical or or sleep disorder that's causing the patient's insomnia, then I'll sort of uh, take a stance of trying to personalize treatment as much as I can. If there are things in their history that are identifiable and treatable uh, specifically, like if someone is, it doesn't happen that often, but sometimes people are drinking a lot of coffee in the evening before they try to go to sleep. 
Mm-hmm. You know, those are types of things that I'll on an individual basis try to take care of. And then broadly speaking, uh, the treatment for insomnia falls into two basic camps. One would be medication-based and the other would be cognitive behavioral therapy. Or- yeah, and we did some work on, we did a randomized control trial of people with depression and ongoing insomnia and showed CBT helped both insomnia and uh, depression scores. So CBT certainly mm-hmm. is a valid approach in people with depression and ongoing sleep disturbance or insomnia. Absolutely. And I think ideally, I personally think that cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, even if someone has co-occurring depression, really should be the first line treatment. The challenge that I think at least we face here in the States, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but really access is the largest issue. So you know, we're we're really lucky where I work that we have a couple of trained behavioral sleep medicine providers who can provide cognitive behavioral therapy uh, for insomnia. But, you know, given the fact that 10% of the population roughly has chronic insomnia, having two providers within a health system, even though we're, we have a number of people compared to some places, you know, really, it's not going to meet the, the needs, I think, of, of the general population. So... That's the challenge with cognitive behavioural therapy. Yeah, that's a good point. We do face the same issues. You know, in specialised centres, we can access that treatment, but you pretty that very quickly becomes diluted once you move outside those specialised centres. And then what about the converse? What about symptoms of excessive sleepiness in depression? Well, so I think that, so that's a great question. Uh, In terms of if a patient's presenting with depression and co-occurring daytime sleepiness, that will actually ratchet up my suspicion that there may be uh, a co-occurring primary sleep disorder that may be causing symptoms just because I say statistically, it's more common for patients who have depression, if they do have co-occurring sleep apnea, for example, to present with a, a daytime sleepiness complaint rather than an insomnia complaint, although both can happen. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the challenges that we face in sleep medicine and, and medicine in general is a lot of times there are, you know, what I'd say sort of not clinical folklore, but sort of messages that are handed down to us that things should appear a certain way. And what I found is a lot of times you can get, you can be pretty wrong if you assume that someone's sleepiness is going to present a specific way. So I've seen people with depression and sleepiness who present for all intents and purposes. You know, I think that they have a primary central nervous system hypersomnia like narcolepsy, the way that they're describing it. And I've been been wrong where they they just can't stay awake. And, you know, I also see a lot of patients who have depression who classically will sleep for long amounts of time or, or say that they do and spend a lot of time in bed. The way that the literature describes people with depression these excessive amounts of sleep is that they tend to be folks who uh, the term is, is they have something called clinophilia, which is basically the word for, for bed love. So these are people who want to stay in bed and be in bed, maybe to avoid what's going on in their lives. And they're not necessarily sleeping longer periods of time. But I've actually, through some of my research and also just some, some clinical work, found that, you know, that's not at all the case. There's lots of people with depression who may have that particular symptom profile, but there's equally, or if not more, a number of people with depression who actually do have an increased sleep uh, requirement or sleep time. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's a specific phenotype for depression, and depression is a pretty heterogeneous disorder in and of itself. So I tend to take the approach of, again, trying to take more of a personalized medicine and assessment 
of each person then targeting treatment towards that. If you're seeing someone who's got hypersomnolence and you feel like you've ruled out another sleep disorder like sleep apnea or sleep disordered breathing and they've got comorbid depression, what do you do in your clinic? How do you manage that person clinically? So I think if I'm pretty convinced that they have depression with co-occurring hypersomnolence, you know, and I've also ruled out or sort of at least addressed various behavioral things that may be helpful to the patient, I'll usually, again, try to figure out what's the most sort of straightforward pathway to, to treatment. And I usually try, and I talk with each patient and try to balance the risks and benefits of all options. But usually we're leading to some kind of pharmacologic therapy. The first thing that I want to know, besides, like it's, assuming this is someone who's a relatively clean slate, never been on any medications is, at least in terms of weight promotion is, have they ever been on, you know, stimulant or any, or any weight promoting agents of any kind? And are they on an antidepressant currently? If they've never been on anything specifically. Uh, one, I think, great option is bupropion. We have access to that in the United States pretty easily. Uh, it's an antidepressant medication that can both help with depressive symptoms. It's well established to do that. And then also it has a reasonable amount of data that can help with fatigue and sleepiness, largely because it works through dopamine and norepinephrine. It has very little serotonergic activity. So that's a very uh, reasonably good compound that sometimes can take care of two problems at once. Mm-hmm. I'll often sometimes look to other alerting antidepressants as well if, if that's not an option. I think protriptyline, which is an old tricyclic antidepressant, we, we have available here in the United States. And it's also a paradoxically alerting agent, so that can be a good choice for some people. And then even some of the old uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitors can be reasonable choices. Uh, the problem is you have to be careful with tyramine diet. So people have to adhere to a pretty strict diet to, to be on those medications typically, although there are some monoamine oxidase patches that we have available in the United States that in theory bypass some of those problems, at least at lower doses. So one category of medications I think about always, if, especially if somebody's depressed, not on an antidepressant medication currently to try to, for lack of a better term, kill two birds with one stone or you know, one of these alerting antidepressants with bupropion being at the top of my list personally. But then if someone's on an antidepressant currently, then it may change the algorithm a little bit. So I still may think about bupropion because it can be used and frequently is used with an SSRI if that's what somebody's on. But if someone's on an SNRI, so specific serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, that can be a little bit complicated with using uh, bupropion simultaneously. But so I still think about bupropion. And I'll also think about other more standard wake-promoting agents that are sort of augmenting drugs. So uh, a great a class of medications are armadacin or modafinil. They're very similar compounds. They're wake-promoting agents. I don't categorize them classically as stimulants because they're not exactly the same as stimulants, but they have some good data in terms of being able to help with daytime sleepiness and a number of disorders. They're relatively easy to prescribe, have a relatively low side effect burden. Uh, and there's some suggestion that it may also help with mood if used concurrently with antidepressant medications. So that's another reasonable choice. And then although there's not a lot of data behind it, we'll frequently also use you know, more standard stimulant medication, uh, methylphenidate, those types of medications, because they also can work. I think the challenge with those medications is they tend to have a few more issues around tolerance and dependence. So you've got to make sure that the patient is right for the drug and, and vice versa. And then what about the converse? So, you know, we talked a bit about CBT for insomnia with comorbid depression, but if we've ticked off the mm-hmm. CBT and thinking of a pharmacology approach and you're managing someone mm-hmm. with depression, how do you think about choice of pharmacology with 
in comorbid insomnia? It always depends a little bit on the, the clinical situation. And also, I would also mention that all of these scenarios that we sort of talked about thus far have, when I've been referring to depression, I've really been focusing on sort of what I call unipolar depression. So these are people who have no history of bipolar disorder. The algorithm can get a little bit different when you start talking about people with bipolar disorder. But generally speaking, in someone with major depressive disorder, I still would tend to, let's say they weren't on any antidepressant medications at all, I would lean towards using either an SSRI or SNRI sort of as a standard therapy for that disorder, but also potentially adding, especially in the short term, a, a sedative hypnotic that, mm-hmm. that may be helpful. So I'll typically use like a Z drug. We use Zolpidem commonly here in the States because it's generic. Uh, it's very easy to obtain. There's some data suggests that Z drugs can be helpful when used with an SSRI. Other options are things like, at least here in the States, we have Isopaclone, et cetera. So that I think is a reasonable option. A lot of people will use Trazodone. Uh, as well, which is, you know, an old uh, sedating antidepressant, but uh, can be used as an off-label sedative hypnotic in some patients. And the data overall is not that great in favor of trazodone, but I'd say clinical experience for a lot of people suggests that it does work for some people. So, uh, and I think it's a reasonable thing to try, particularly if you have concerns about, you know, tolerance or dependence to uh, sedative hypnotics. And then there are also some specific situations where you may want to lean towards an agent that is, especially if someone has a more severe depression, that's really potentially helping their depression and then sort of improving the quality of their sleep as a, an ancillary side effect. So, you know, examples can be mirtazapine, for example, a very sedating antidepressant. It's a very dirty drug. When I say dirty, I mean it it affects a lot of different neurotransmitter systems, but it can be quite sedating, even in low doses for folks. And it can also, one of the problems is it can cause weight gain. Well, there may be some people with depression and insomnia who are also pretty cachectic. They've lost a lot of weight because their appetite's gone down so much. So that may be actually a really good choice for them to use that particular agent. I think for most people, that's not necessarily what I would start them with, but you know, something that I, w- I would think about. And then even in patients with either, you know, bipolar depression or, or uh, depression who are, they still have significant depressive symptoms. In those cases, I may use or recommend trying like a low dose of a atypical neuroleptic agent because those medications have been shown to also have some sort of mood uh, enhancing effects in some people. So these are things like quetiapine, compounds like that, but you have to be very careful with those because the risk of those compounds get pretty high when people start having metabolic dysregulation, glucose intolerance, et cetera. So if someone's mood disorder is relatively well treated, that's not a medication that I would reach for right off the bat. Oh, thanks so much, Dave, for doing that interview. It's a nice reassurance for me because one of the things I struggle with in my own practice is when I see people who've got mood disturbance and are feeling sleepy, is trying to tease out, well, is it... Are they depressed? Is this part of their depression? Have they got a separate thing? And, you know, hearing from someone who's experienced and uh, who really researches this area that it's hard Mm. to differentiate these things. It makes me not feel so bad about my own inability to (laughs) differentiate these Mm. things. Yeah, the old chicken and the egg scenario. It's hard, isn't it, to work out what's what's causing what? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in a pragmatic sense, as clinicians, often, you know, I've got to step back from getting too caught up in the, well, I'm not going to do anything because I don't know which came first. Mm. You know, mm. Someone's not feeling well, we've actually got to move forward and do something. And we'll treat it all anyway. The, the new way of thinking, isn't it, with comorbidities, <laughs> you don't have to worry too much about chicken and egg. It's just like, you know, treat, treat them both or treat them all. Anyway, they're in their own right. So we talked in the last episode about rhythm and mood with Associate Professor Sean Kane from Monash University. And part of Sean's recent work has been on looking at selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, or the common antidepressants such as uh, citalopram, escitalopram, fluoxetine, sertraline. And citalopram was one of the ones they particularly researched. And some of the research has shown that the SSRIs can impact sensitivity to light and via this mechanism, impact with sleep regulation and impact on depression. So Sean talked with me a little bit more in depth about his research. So we talked in the last episode about rhythm and mood, the effects of circadian rhythm on mood and depressive symptoms and the impact of light. And part of what you talked about was your work on SSRIs and how they can modulate people's sensitivity to light and may well be an important factor to consider in treating depression. So for clinicians who manage people with depression, you know, what are some of the considerations around light exposure, SSRI use in managing depression? Sure. We've been studying selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors and how they impact the circadian system. And we found that they greatly boost how the circadian system responds to light. They essentially tell your clock, even if the light's relatively dim, that, that it's quite bright. That can be great for mood. So during the day, you're getting light that's that could be moderately bright. It's perceived by your clock as very bright, and that has mood-elevating effects. So we've all experienced mood-elevating effects of light. That happens to be mediated by the circadian clock. So if you, mm-hmm. if you boost it, that can be good. The problem comes when you're, you're boosting light sensitivity at night. So your, your clock is very sensitive to light at night. And when you experience light at night, it's basically a signal to your clock that it's wrong about what time of day it is. Mm-hmm. It's saying it's not night, it's day. So when you boost that signal and you have irregular schedules, then you could live in essentially the, a perpetual jet lag. And that's that can be problematic. So SSRIs can be good, they boost your response to light, boost the, the mood elevating effects of light. They can be bad because they can essentially make you have more jet lag-like effect of exposure to light at night. So a physician, most no one's going to really know that because we, we're just publishing it now, yeah. but anyone prescribing an SSRI to someone with depression for the first time no matter who they are, I think I think a good message to give a patient would be that we now know that a side effect of SSRIs is jet lag. It's a sort of jet lag. You don't get on yep. a jet to do it, but it's it's telling your clock it's at the wrong time. It's shifting it around. It's like it's like changing time zones every day. Mm-hmm. It, anyone who's experienced jet lag knows that results in poor mood. Yep. So if you had jet lag every day of your life, that would not be good for your mood. And I, I think if you can tell people one of the side effects is jet lag if you have irregular light schedules. Mm -hmm. If I were a physician prescribing an SSRI, I'd say stabilize your light-dark cycle. Have it very dim in the evening. Maybe if it's past dusk, make sure you have the lights in your house very, very dim, as dim as you can. Don't use your phone and keep a very regular schedule, regular schedule of lights being dim and then lights being bright the next day. I think that would help almost everyone who goes on an SSRI. And I think part of the reason why the efficacy of SSRIs is so poor is that you have these two things battling against each other. You've got the benefit of elevating light sensitivity on mm-hmm. mood in the day, the direct effect of light on mood, and then you've got those negative effects of light at night. And in some people, the balance is better mood. 
and some people the balance is poorer mood and lots of people switch off medications when they get on them because of that negative effect we don't do a great job of phenotyping depression but is there a particular subset that you'd be more cautious about ssris absolutely we think that some people with depression are already quite sensitive to light and some people with depression, which is more often the case, are hyposensitive to light. So they, they don't, their circadian systems don't respond to light. They can't line their bodies up with their sleep in a normal way. And they don't get that mood elevating effects of light. But there are other people who are hypersensitive to light. For example, we just finished a study showing that people with delayed sleep phase disorder are hypersensitive to light. They also tend to have more depression. Mm -hmm. Their depression doesn't come from a lack of mood elevating effects of light during the day. It's really because their, their rhythms are so easy to disrupt at night. Their rhythms are bouncing around. It's messing up all the rhythms of their body. And they're having essentially a depression for a different reason. So those people have to be really careful. If you're going to boost the effect of light on a system that's already hypersensitive, that could be a recipe for disaster for some people. And certainly we've found that people who are more evening type, who tend to be more sensitive to light, do much poorer with SSRIs. It would really be a great uh, simple message to get out to physicians to have their patients watch their light exposure patterns. Yeah. So that's 2018. We're beginning to understand SSRI's impact. In five years' time, where's this going in terms of rhythms, depression, you know, what might managing circadian rhythms or light exposure look like for depressed patients in five years' time? I think the message is getting out there all the time that, you know, exposure to light at night is not good for you. Exposure to too much blue light in the evening is not healthy. Years ago, it, it was the case that everyone just thought light was something completely innocuous. And now people are accepting that it's not innocuous and it has a powerful physiological effect. So going forward, this has to go from people just starting to accept it yeah. to it becoming circadian medicine. For people who are teaching physicians that this is a powerful impact, light has an absolutely powerful impact on all sorts of systems of the body. And I think depression is a great place to start because we know there are, it's already established as direct effects of light on mood. We now realize how important it is to have regular schedules. So I see things going in the future with more of an emphasis on choosing the right light environments, being aware of light and having light hygiene as something that's important as sleep hygiene or, yeah. or, or a healthy diet. You want a healthy diet of light as well. So that can go in, in, in different directions, an understanding of yeah. the effects of drugs, ways to help people monitor their light environment more easily, phenotyping individuals, those who are already hypersensitive, hyposensitive. So understanding the system of the individual to generate treatments that benefit that person's body better. That's where things are going. But circadian medicine is something I think those are words that you're going to hear together more over the next five years. In five years time, we can you know, look at that in five years, listen to this again and see if I was right. But I, I think that's those are going to be words that people use together often. Yeah, that's a really nice point. When I think of the skill set that a psychiatrist actually should even have now, I think they should have a good understanding of circadian rhythms. But that applies to so many medical specialties, endocrinology with diabetes, metabolic control, weight. You could pretty much pick a specialty and circadian rhythms impact on them. And that's something we've not done well in Western medicine thus far, is incorporate 
an understanding of the circadian rhythm into how we practice medicine and look at treatments. Absolutely. And it's it's amazing. It seems like everything we study is influenced by circadian rhythm. So I, I've done many different studies. I did a study that was a 39-day in-lab study when I used to work in Boston. And we were able to turn people who are super healthy into looking like they had diabetes with just a manipulation of, of their sleep-wake timing. Luckily, they all went back to normal. We, we, we gave them lots of rests and, and normal circadian timing afterwards, and, and they all did okay. But uh, it really drastically impacted their metabolism. It even impacted you know, bone growth factors. It, it affects your bones. It affects your heart. It affects um, gro- cancer, tumor growth. Uh, it affects your metabolism. It's really everything. If you, if you think of it, almost every cell in your body has a clock in it. Uh, it's capable of generating its own rhythm. We've, we've got a body full of clocks. If you mess them up, they're not going to function properly. And our evolutionary history was to have this strong light signal. The only light signal really that meant anything to our clocks was the sun coming up, sun going down. And that kept all of the rhythms of our body aligned in a certain way. And that's how we evolved. Now we have access to electric lights and phones and basically light input to a system that didn't evolve to deal with it. And so all of this is is very disruptive for our health and it really needs to be controlled more, especially in mood disorders, especially in mood disorders when you're boosting the responsiveness to light. So those things will be appreciated more as, as more research comes out and as we develop tools for clinicians that are reasonable to apply. Yeah, that's one of the things that's lacking. I know you're working on things, but at the moment, yeah, I don't have the right measuring tools to be able to pick where is somebody's phase exactly, how am I therefore going to tailor treatments, for example. Exactly. It's so difficult to measure phase. We, we do it in the lab, but you need to bring someone in in the evening outside of business hours because melatonin doesn't rise during business hours Mm -hmm. and you need to take multiple samples you need to send those samples away and you need to get them assay and come back and it's and you need to do this under really tightly controlled conditions it's no wonder that hasn't caught on in a clinic setting and we've known since 1980 or so the timing the biological timing of your sleep has a huge effect on the quality of the sleep so you're trying to treat sleep it would really be good to know what circadian time it is but you don't but now we're we're coming up with with models and, and devices and wearables that help us be able to measure circadian time or at least estimate it without having to measure it directly and, and to do some of these tests even during business hours so it's the tools need to go further before this ever really seriously impacts the clinic so what did you make of that, Moira? Oh, another great interview. Thank you. Thanks, Sean. Yeah, it's great. I'm really interested in that. I love the idea of looking five years ahead. You two do some bit of crystal ball <laughs> action there. Thinking about circadian medicine, because it's not just around the depression medication. It's around everything. We've talked about this before, chemotherapy and other types of medication and the timing of such. I guess one thing that has, if I was there, I would have butted in and asked about what, something I was, that I was interested in was, I guess, the role of anxiety as well, which doesn't, doesn't come into it, but we all know, you know, works pretty closely with with depression usually and then looking at even advice to people someone usually someone i see who has depression as well as some sleep disturbance particularly if it's insomnia there's a desperation there's a real desperation for sleep and we need to still you know still looking at ways of how to best manage like even we're talking about managing two hours off their phone before 
bed and the lights. That's hard. Yeah. Like sometimes that's, that in itself is a really hard thing to do. And I find that really that's a, a thing I struggle with in, in, private, in clinical practice. Mm-hmm. That I guess in, in research you don't necessarily have to deal with that behavioural stuff, the desperation or the, you know, trying to help people in that way and give them some solutions. And so addressing that reliance and their addiction on their devices, that sort of stuff is a big thing. Just yeah. really hard to just to cut through that. That can take several sessions in itself and you haven't yeah. even got through anything else. Sometimes that real desperation and that heightened anxiety, which is hard to deal with as well. Next time we get Sean in, I'd like to talk about, he won't have any answers, so that's your job. <laughs> but it comes into it, doesn't it? It comes into, like, if we're moving forward as a field and looking at these amazing advances in looking at okay, the timing of stuff, I guess, yeah, my job is to lead a lead of sort of behavioural psychologist type thing to, to go alongside and, and think about how to help with those messages and how to, how to soothe the anxiety and how to soothe the desperation. Really nice point because depression doesn't exist in isolation. Mm. You know, either that lowered mood, often there's anxiety, people mm. living in the real world, they've got real world pressures and, yeah. you know, that's your non sort of clinical trial environment. Yes. It's a lot messier. Yes, yes it is quite messy. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, but wonderful. Thank you. So thanks very much to both Sean and David for those great interviews. Each of them and each of their groups are doing groundbreaking research and there's really changing the way we think about depression treatment and more importantly potentially improving the effectiveness of treatments which unfortunately is relatively poor Mm. thus far Mm. so really exciting work from both of these groups so people are looking for more information i'll put links to both david plant's research and sean kane's research in the show notes there are some links about mood sleep light depression on sleep hub that i'll put in and as i mentioned in the last episode the book chronotherapy for effective disorders for me is a a great book that's helpful for clinicians to start to get their heads around uh, this type of area so moira your turn this month what's your clinical tip my clinical tip is to not underestimate the power of anxiety when dealing with mood and sleep issues. I think there needs to be a great awareness and respect for the potential for comorbid anxiety, with whether or not someone's talking about that or the, the referral or dimensions, it's probably likely to be there, I'd say. And it's a big part of the clinical picture with you know, the cognitions and behaviours surrounding sleep and trying to adjust that and trying to manage that. So my clinical tip is really just to be mindful for that and to assess their anxiety levels as well as mood. Great. Thanks very much. Now, you're on a roll. So let's go on with the pick of the month. What What's your pick for this month? Oh, well, so I liked a, a paper that came out of BMC Public Health just recently. It's titled Chronic Sleep Deprivation and Gender-Specific Risk of Depression in Adolescents, a Prospective Population-Based Study. Group from Canada. They're excellent, amazing, good quality research, thousands of people in the cohort, part of another, you know, one of those ongoing long, longitudinal studies, mm-hmm. with lots of data. And I think... Yeah, it's just it's just a good one to add as the pick as sort of a pick for this podcast as an adjunct to people thinking about these issues because we haven't touched on gender specific risk. Yeah, good point. And I think that uh, in this paper and obviously it, it is you know, young females in this more at risk. Of, of depression and particularly in relation to the chronic sleep deprivation I find that really interesting and i think people should have a have a read of that great thank you what about you what was your pick well thanks again to sean kane because sean put me onto this article which i love so this is called bipolar mood cycles and lunar tidal cycles from tom Ware, and it's looking at people it was only a small cohort of people so 17 people with rapid cycling bipolar disorder but looking at about 37 years of data and looking at when they had variations in mood within a day and would flip from more depressed to more manic mood. 
And by carefully analysing the lunar cycle and the tidal cycles, he showed that people were more likely to flip from lower mood to elevated mood at particular points of the lunar cycle. Wow. Interesting. So it's pretty cool. Mm. It's a pretty heavy paper and I'm still working my way through some of the science and the tables mm. and things because it's quite complex, but it's really nice. You know, mm. for many years and, you know, historically in literature, people write about the full moon and effects on mood and oh, absolutely. effects on things. But finally, here's a paper that ties these things yes. things together. Well, you and I have both worked in emergency departments in our younger years. And did you remember, I remember very clearly on, on full moon nights, you would get a lot of people with different, like quite erratic behavior for sure coming in did you notice did you remember that i do but then i also have seen a couple of papers debunking that where Mm. people have looked at the moon cycle and looked at ed presentations and Mm. shown no relationship and so that's (laughs) it's hard to know how much of how much of it is a positive sort of self-reinforcement that we come into that with a societal belief of the full moon or when the ladies didn't look at melbourne-based hospitals (laughs) exactly or whether in fact the signal's there but the the research doesn't there's too much noise to be able to pick that up in the in the research. Anyway, I can highly recommend this paper and thanks, Sean, for the heads up and for the tip. Excellent. So what's coming up in the, the world of sleep? A couple of conferences. So the conference we're both involved with is Sleep Town Under 2018, which is in Brisbane, October 17 to October uh, 20. Great program. So I encourage people to check that out. And if you're at all interested in sleep and sleep research, yeah, come to Brisbane, join us. It'll be a really great meeting. And look out for our next episode. So it'll be episode 34. And that's going to be on the measurement of sleepiness. Again, I'm indulging myself. It's something I struggle with in mm. clinical practice. Sounds like it should be simple, but in fact, it's actually really tricky. Yes. And so hopefully by interviewing David Plant, because it's one of his research interests, he'll, he'll give me all the answers and simplify things for me. Great. Well, I think that's it's a wrap, isn't it? Yeah, thanks everyone for listening. And please send us any suggestions at podcast at sleephub.com.au. And of course, if you like the podcast, please review us on iTunes and you can subscribe via any podcast catcher or via the Sleep Talk app. Thanks a lot. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.